Esther, chapters 3 and 4. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the fourth month, sorry, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors all over the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to kill, destroy, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. 
And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go into the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast also as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. So in the northeast corner of Texas and the southwest corner of Arkansas lies a small city with a unique tourist appeal. It doesn't have world-famous barbecue ribs, unfortunately. There are no uniquely talented country music artists, also unfortunately. And it doesn't have the biggest tractor that you've ever seen, and that may or may not be unfortunate depending on who you are. It doesn't boast a large population, it doesn't boast a buzzing downtown scene. It's appealing for one reason. It's a city split in between two states. Texarkana, the rare cities in two states at once, Texas and Arkansas. Each side has its own mayor, its own fire department, its own police department, its own post office. So tourists visit the city so they can go to a sign that kind of like that should be up there. So they can take pictures and say, look, I can be in two places at once. That's the appeal of Texarkana in Arkansas. Well, the main character in our text today is standing in a place not too different from Texarkana. While she's not straddling physical state firmly planted in the culture that she lives in, in Persia, and one foot planted in the culture of her people, the Jews. And just like the tourists visiting Texarkana, stand with one foot in each state forever. As the sun slowly sets, she'll be forced to choose one side or the other to rest for the night. Looks like we got a mic change. All right, sounds good. Thanks for bearing with us this morning. Uh, we'll see how this goes. 
I can only gesture with one hand now. I like, I'm a, I'm a, bo I'm a both hand kind of guy. If I start getting really pumped up, I'll take it away. <laughs> All right, so we're talking about Tex Arcana. So we have a little bit in common with Esther, our main character. We too, as God's people, we're forced to choose a side. We're faced with the choice of living as citizens in God's heavenly country where he rules as king, or we can live in the country of our world and of our culture where we ourselves, where we sit on the throne as king. And so our brief time in God's word this morning, it's going to force us to ask ourselves, which side are we living on? Am I on the side with God and his people? Or am I on the side opposed to God and opposed to God's people? So that's the question we want to ask. So today, we're going to ask that question. Um, first, we're going to get reintroduced to some of the characters and events in this story. Then we're going to work through Esther chapters 3 and 4 at a pretty rapid click since we have lots of ground to cover. And then we're going to end with asking ourselves, what does this text mean? Why is it relevant to us? And which side are we on? In one summary statement, that's important to remember. Josh has gone over this the past two weeks. This is kind of the theme of Esther is this. God remains powerfully present even when he is apparently absent. God remains powerfully present even when he seems apparently absent. Remember, the name of God is not mentioned once in the book of Esther. We don't see him existing as a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud like we do in other stories in the Old Testament. We don't see his name whatsoever, but we see God moving beneath the surface of the book of Esther. So what's happened up until this point? Well, if this is the first week you're joining us, we were introduced in the first episode of Esther to a king. His name is Ahasuerus, king of Persia. Now this king, he loves to party. He throws a 187-day party full of food, drink, have whatever you want. And at the end of that, he asks his wife, Vashti, to come parade herself around for the drunken crowd that's there celebrating at the party. Well, of course, Vashti refuses. And what does the king do? He kicks her out. He says, no longer will you be the queen. You're no longer my wife. I'm kicking you out. And that begins a search for a new queen. And that's where we're introduced to the main character of our story, Esther. Esther is a Jewish woman who's taken from her home, forced into the harem of the king, and then is forced to uh, basically try out, uh, try out to be queen of Persia um, on one night with the king. And the king, she pleases the king, so the, the king chooses Esther to be her queen. We're also introduced to Esther's cousin, Mordecai. Now, the last kind of the last, uh, the, the, the end of the last episode that we saw was Mordecai saving the king from assassination. So we would expect, as we pick up the story, that Mordecai will be rewarded for saving the king from a certain death. That's where it picks up. But we'll see. That's not quite how it happens. So in Esther 3, what happens? We're introduced to Haman the Agagite. Now, Haman the Agagite, that just sounds like a bad guy, right? If you're an Agagite, you're definitely the bad guy in a story. Don't be the Agagite. Haman is the Agagite. He's the story's antagonist. Now, what's an Agagite? Um, it's, a, it's kind of a, a weird thing, a weird name, but it's really important for our story. Um, Agag was a king of a country called Amalek. Haman is descended from that line. That's why he's called an Agagite. Now, the, the Agagites, they were ancient foes of the people of Israel. 
There's more I want to say about that, but I want you to tuck that detail back in the, in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to that a little bit later in the story, why it's so important that Haman is called an Agagite and what it does for our text this morning. So Haman is introduced, and he's introduced as kind of the, the, new, the, the new big man on campus. He is second in command in all of Persia. So we expect Mordecai to be rewarded, but rather an old enemy of the Jewish people. He's rewarded, and he's taken to second in command in Persia. And the king of Persia offers this, this command. Anytime you see Haman, you have to bow down before Haman. Well, Mordecai hears that. And when he sees Haman come, come out of the king's court or the king's gate, he refuses to bow to Haman. Now, the text doesn't quite say why exactly he refuses to bow. Uh, it could be because um, uh, Mordecai, being a Jew, refused to bow to anyone other than, than Yahweh. Uh, that could be it. He could have seen it as idolatrous. Uh, it could be because he knew Haman was an Agagite. He knew Haman was an enemy of the Jews, and perhaps that's why he refused to bow to Haman, just because he hated him. Um, he might have just had a personal vendetta against Haman. The text isn't clear, but all we know is that Haman, or I'm sorry, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. I also just realized this has been hanging from my neck the whole time. Uh, I'm just going to put it back there. So Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. Now, when Haman, um, when Haman sees this, there's a few guys that tell Haman, hey, Mordecai, that guy over there, he refuses to bow down to you. And we know that he's a Jew. He's one of God's people. So what does Haman do? Well, Haman does what any of us would do when somebody doesn't bow down to us. They resolve to kill that person, right? It is a, almost a somewhat humorous account that we see here in the book of Esther. Haman is so enraged that he's going to kill Mordecai but he's not going to stop there. He takes it to a whole new level, and it shows kind of the insane supervillain uh, character that Haman plays in this story. Haman decides, not only will I kill Mordecai, but I'm going to wipe out all of Mordecai's people. That is what Haman resolves to do. We see Haman as a wicked, wicked supervillain in the book of Esther, an ancient enemy who is striking again God's people. So what does Haman do? He decides, I'm going to kill the people of Israel, but before I do, I'm going to have a little, a little bit of fun. I'm going to kind of roll the dice to see what day the annihilation of the uh, Jewish people will be. So you see in the text, uh, it talks about he, he casts the, the poor. Um, it would be something like, uh, you've maybe heard in the Old Testament before, casting lots. It could have been something like a dice or something like that, but he's basically choosing the day that he will annihilate the Jewish people and he's doing that by chance. He's kind of rolling the dice to see what day it lands on. Now, this is a significant detail in the text. Why is that? Well, while it looks like Haman is in control, we actually see that God is still moving beneath the surface. Why is that? Throughout the Old Testament, God's people would actually cast lots for different things. They might roll the dice for, for different decisions. It wasn't, looked, it wasn't looked on necessarily as a bad thing. It's the way they would make some of their decisions. So for example, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when they were choosing uh, which goat would be slaughtered for the sacrifice and which goat would be sent away as the scapegoat outside the camp, they would cast lots to see which, uh, which role each goat would play. When Joshua leads God's people into the Promised Land, they cast lots to see uh, which, uh, which 
which location each tribe would live in. And lots were sometimes used to determine who was a guilty party in a, like a judicial matter. But the underlying, kind of the undercurrent of casting these lots for the Jewish people was that it was never seen as random chance. There was a firm belief that God was present and that God was working when the dice were thrown. So if you're a good Jew reading this book, you might even hear whispers of Proverbs 16.33, which says up on the screen, Jonathan, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So as Haman rolls the dice, Haman thinks this is chance at play. This is luck. One moment. This is luck, but an observant reader would recognize that God's fingertips are all over the die as it's cast. God is the one who's determining what happens when the day of their death is chosen. God is still sovereignly working in every event in Esther. And this shows us that nothing happens outside of God's control. Everything that happens from the day that we're born to the day that we die and everything in between, everything is underneath God's control in his sovereign direction. We see this in the story, right? Esther grows up in a family. She's taken from her home. She's forced to try out as queen of Persia. Um, she lives kind of as a Persian, even though she's a Jew. She pleases the king, and ultimately, she's made queen of Persia. She's where she is because God has providentially directed her life to this precise moment. Mordecai saves the king from certain death, and we expect him to be rewarded, but rather than being rewarded, his reward is deferred. We don't see that, but that's happening under the sovereign direction of the Lord, and we're going to see the payoff of that later in the book of Esther. So what does it mean for us? If God is sovereignly directing everything in the book of Esther, what does that mean for us today? Well, first, it forces us to admit that we are not in ultimate control of our lives. Our world and our culture would have us believe that we're in the driver's seat of our life, right? And of course, we recognize that every decision we make, it has consequences. What we do matters. We have responsibility in everything that we do. But the anthem of our world is opposed to what God says. While God says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand, our world says, with the poet William Ernest Henley, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Friends, we must not fool ourselves with the mirage of control. When Haman rolled the die in the story, he was under the illusion that the fate of the Jews was up to him and was up to chance. It was this false foundation that ultimately leads to Haman's demise and if we're not careful, it will also lead to our own demise. Second, it forces us to go to our knees rather than go to the drawing board. It forces us to go to our knees rather than to the drawing board. What do we do when our plans are foiled, right? What do we do? Go back to the old drawing board, right? When our strategy at work doesn't work out, uh, when we put a bid on that house and we don't win it, uh, when we lose our job, um, think about when we uh, when our parenting efforts fall a little short, 
what do we do? We go back to the drawing board, back to the place that gives us the control and the power to resolve our own issues. When we go back to the drawing board, we're able to strategize and figure out a solution that we can, uh, that will solve our problem our way. And we even do this when we're faced with our own sinful failures and shortcomings, right? When we've yelled at our kids for the hundredth time this week and we recognize that we are not the parents that we think we should be. When we have strung together a couple weeks of sheer laziness at our job or in school. <clears throat> when, we given, when we've given into that sin that we promised that we wouldn't give into anymore. What do we do? We go back to the drawing board. We come up with another way that we can get better. We come up with another way that we can avoid temptation. Another way to try harder to be the person we're supposed to be. And we recognize some of those things are good things, but it's not the end. It's not the ultimate thing. When we understand that it's God who is in control and not us, we're driven to trust that it's only by his power that any problem gets solved. It's only by his power that we say no to the sin that has been constantly weighing us down. We realize that rather than spending all of our time to, trying to figure out how we can do better, we start by acknowledging that he is in control and that going to him on our knees and in our weakness is the only way forward. It's the first step. It's not an afterthought. Brothers and sisters, this is the way of God's people. As you stand with one foot in God's country and one foot in our world and our culture, know that the way we view and the way we respond to God's sovereign direction and his control, it exposes which side that we're on either the side that lives with God as king who has control or the side that lives with us as king, with us ultimately in control. So we see here that God is sovereignly, sovereignly directing the events of Esther and the story continues. So Haman has resolved to kill the people of God, right? He rolls the dice, chooses the day. His next step is to go to the king. And so we see him go to King Ahasuerus, and he's basically expecting the king to go along with him. And we've seen already throughout the book of Esther that the king is pretty easy, easily manipulated. So Haman goes to the king and bribes him with 10,000 talents of silver. That would be like 300 tons of silver. Exorbitant amount of money. And he's asking the king, will you write this into a law? Will you allow for me to uh, basically make it legal to wipe out an entire people group, the Jews. Well, the king, being easily manipulated, agrees with Haman, he makes it legal, he signs it into a law, and he blasts that law all over the nation, that in any place, everywhere where you find a Jew, we will wipe them out on this particular day. And we see here that the text calls Haman uh, the Agagite, the enemy the Jews. So it adds another kind of like uh, description about him. He's the enemy of the Jews. And this is where that detail I told you to, to tuck away in the back of your head about Haman being an Agagite. This is where it comes into play. So what is it about being an Agagite that makes Haman an ancient foe? Well, like I mentioned earlier, 
Agagites come from King Agag. He was king of a country called Amalek. Now, right after God rescued his people from Egypt, remember the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, they go out into the wilderness. The first people that they encounter is a nation called Amalek. But Amalek pretty much attacks them out of nowhere. They're not provoked by anything. Amalek just attacks Israel, showing no mercy, starting to kill Israelites who are simply traveling in the wilderness. Well, in that exchange, God ultimately leads the people of Israel into victory. Uh, This is where uh, Moses, his arms are held up all day by Aaron, um, and I think it's her. And God gives Israel the victory over Amalek. But it doesn't end there. Um, God actually makes a promise to Israel regarding Amalek. Uh, if you, if you uh, yep, switch a few slides there. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. After this exchange, God says that he will personally go to war with Amalek. He says that Israel will fight them for generations to come, and ultimately, God will wipe Amalek out someday for their sinful action against his people, Israel, against the Jews. God is making this promise in the context of the covenant. So this is important. Right after this, God takes Moses up to Mount Sinai and he begins this covenant, this promise to always be faithful to his people, Israel, to always protect them, to always make sure they prosper. But there's an expectation with that covenant. The expectation is that Israel will be faithful to him. God will show covenant faithfulness to his people, but he's expecting faithfulness. He's expecting obedience. And as they obey, he will bless them. So that's, that's the first exchange with Amalek. That's important because the next time we see them, we see King Saul fighting against Amalek. And this time, God commands King Saul to wipe out all of Amalek, to wipe out the entire nation. And what does Saul do? Rather than wiping out the entire nation, he goes to war with them, wins the war, but he leaves King Agag, Agagai, that's where it comes from, he leaves King Agag alive. He directly disobeys God. This ultimately leads to King Saul's demise. But we see here in the text almost uh, like a lingering effect of Saul's disobedience to God. The enemy that God said he would war against for generation to generation now is threatening to wipe out the Jews. And if we see here the difference between uh, what we've normally seen in the Old Testament is that normally God's people have the upper hand when they fight against Amalek, when they fight against the Agagites. In Esther, it's reversed. This time, God's, the, the enemy of God's people, the Agagites, they have the upper hand. It looks like they're about to wipe out God's people. So if you are, again, an astute Jewish person, like reading this for the first time, you might realize this that God promised to always protect his people from this nation, but Israel disobeyed. They were unfaithful to God. That's why they're in exile right now. That's why they're in Persia, because they did not hold up their end of the covenant. And so God disciplined them by putting them in exile. And now 
when they're faced with Haman the Agagite wanting to annihilate them, they're asking this question. Will God hold up his end of the covenant and rescue his people even though we haven't been faithful to him? Will God still protect us although we have not been faithful to our God? And the way it looks, it looks like Israel's about to be wiped out. One of the commentators, Karen Jobes, says this about this exchange. She says, the original readers would have understood this one clue is introducing yet another episode of the age-old conflict between Israel and the powers that sought to destroy her. God's promise to protect Israel and to be at war with Amalek in every generation was given within the context of the covenant. But would that promise still stand for the Jews living in exile precisely because they had violated that covenant? Could they expect God to be faithful to his covenant promises when they had failed to keep theirs? In other words, was the covenant between God and his people still in effect? Was the promise that God made to his people, was it still there? Was it still going to hold true? Now, have you ever found yourself asking this question? Have you ever felt so overwhelmed by your sin and by your failure that you wonder if God even loves you anymore? Have you ever thought that you simply have gone too far this time and you're not sure if God is going to take you back? Have you ever wondered, is God even there anymore? If you felt that, and I'd venture a guess that most of us probably have felt that at some point or another, you understand what God's people are feeling at this point in time. They're wondering if God will still be faithful to them, even though they haven't been faithful to him. But to get the answer, we need to continue on in the story. So the king signs it into the law, and he sends that law into the entire nation that God's people will be annihilated. Now, Mordecai hears about this, and we see in chapter 4, he begins weeping and wailing and mourning. We see him tearing his clothes, wearing he's in sackcloth and ashes. And that's just, it's signaling that he's in mourning because of the, the great distress that's on his people, the Jews. We see all the Jews everywhere. They're bewildered, and they're mourning along with Mordecai because they're facing their own annihilation. Esther hears about this, uh, so there must have been some people that saw Mordecai uh, kind of uh, weeping and tearing his clothes out near the king's gate. Esther hears about this. Uh, she's not exactly sure why, so she sends some clothes out to Mordecai. Like, put some clothes on, man, get a hold of yourself. Um, Mordecai sends back um, and lets her know, hey, here's why I'm doing this. Um, so uh, Mordecai is basically, he sends the law back to Esther to say, the king has written into law that we will be annihilated. Um, Look at verse 8 with me in chapter 4. It says, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree, uh, him meaning the messenger. Mordecai also gave him a written copy of the decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Mordecai is saying, Esther, now is the time for you to show your true identity. 
Now is the time for you to use your position as queen of Persia to go before the king and to plead for your people, to rescue your people from certain death. What does Esther do? Well, like any of us might do, Esther hesitates. Well, why? Look with me at verses 10 and 11. It says, Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. Esther hesitates because there's a law saying that if you go to the king when he doesn't ask you to come into his court, unless he holds out the golden scepter to you, he'll put you to death. If you kind of catch him at the wrong time, if he's kind of waking up from a nap and he's a little grumpy like most of us are when we get up from a nap, anything that displeases him, he can legally put you to death for that. And Esther for one, she saw what happened to a previous queen, right? The reason she's queen is because the king got mad at another queen and kicked her out. She also hasn't been called to go before the king in 30 days. So there's no reason for her to go before the king. So she's pretty hesitant to risk her life when she's lived for almost five years at this point as queen of Persia. She was, Mordecai is, is basically telling her, uh, choose to identify with God's people or with the people who are against God's people. Make your choice. She's forced to choose which, which side would she be on. Would she identify with God's people or would she identify with the people against them? And we can sympathize with Esther, right? She's being asked to put her life on the line by identifying with her people. And while I doubt that any of our lives might be on the line at work or, you know, in our neighborhood. We often hesitate to identify as one of God's people, right? We feel uncomfortable telling people that we're Christians, let alone telling other people that we believe that Jesus Christ is the one true Lord and that it is only through Jesus and Jesus alone that, he, that we can be saved. We know that if we identify with God's people, it may cost us something. It might cost us something very little compared to the uh, believers we see in places of persecution, but it will cost us something nonetheless. Esther understood that identifying with God's people, even if she wasn't factoring God into the equation, even if she wasn't thinking that, yes, this is God's people, she recognized that identifying with the Jews it could cost her her life. So what does she do? Well, Mordecai responds to her hesitation. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. He says, Then Mordecai told him to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai says, if you side against God's people, 
Although you think you'll be safe because you're queen, because you're queen of Persia, if you side against God's people, you will not survive the annihilation of the Jews. Now, what's interesting here, the text isn't clear. Mordecai could be doing one of two things. He could, be, uh, he could have a certain belief or faith that anyone who is uh, being intentionally unfaithful, intentionally not identifying themselves with the Jewish people, that they would suffer some kind of punishment, that, that God would be just in, um, that God would punish the people that kind of shy away from him. The other thing he could be doing is actually threatening to give up her, her identity, to give up her position. This is where we see some of the moral ambiguity. We're, we're not exactly sure, are some of these characters good? Are they bad? We recognize that they're broken people. They're sinful people. And regardless of what Mordecai was doing in this particular situation, he makes it clear that choosing to go against God's people, choosing not to identify with God's people, it would not bring Esther deliverance. He does say, though, that the Jews, they will be delivered. They will be delivered from the annihilation of the Persians. He doesn't necessarily attribute that to God himself, but he says what is true, that the Jews will be delivered from this despair that they're facing. And then he poses a question to Esther. He says, Esther, how do you know that you haven't come to this position as queen for this particular time? We see that God has been orchestrating all these events for Esther to be in the position that she's in, to risk her life and to go before the king to rescue her people from certain destruction. And Mordecai says, Esther, how do you know that you haven't been brought to this exact point for that purpose? Without saying God's name, Mordecai reminds Esther that she exactly where she is so that she can pick a side so that she can choose to side with God's people and save them from destruction well how does Esther respond look at verse 16 she says go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days night or day I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther's response is one of the coolest responses we see in the scriptures. First she says, go. I hear you, Mordecai. Go and fast for me. Now we're not exactly sure. Does that mean fast and pray? Does that mean just starve yourself for three days? The text doesn't make it clear. We don't necessarily see if Esther is doing this as a spiritual gesture or if she's making a decision to save her people apart from God. But what is clear is that she hears the message and she recognizes her role in going before the king to save her people. She says, Mordecai, go and fast for me. And she too will fast. And then she delivers one of the most, one of just the coolest responses we see in the Bible. She says, I'm going to go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. If if this were like a a movie or a Netflix show or something like that, I picture the music starting to pick up as she kind of walks away, and if I perish, I perish. (laughs) I don't know if that's exactly how it went, 
But the point is that Esther chooses to risk her life by siding with God's people. She chooses to take God's side, to take God's people's side. God, in his providence, he leads Esther to this very point, and he leaves her with a choice. He asks Esther, whose side are you on? And although the text doesn't say she sided with God himself, and even if God wasn't on her mind, she makes the decision to side with God's people, which ultimately is the right decision. So, why do we study the book of Esther? Why do we spend the last 30 minutes going through the story talking about Amalekites and Agagites and poor and Esther siding with her people? What does this teach us? Well, first, this part of Esther teaches us that God is faithful in spite of our faithlessness. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the Jews were in this position because they had been unfaithful to the covenant that God had formed with them. They had forsaken God and his laws. They started worshiping other gods, or they started worshiping other gods, and because of their faithlessness, because of their unfaithfulness to God, he disciplined them by sending them into exile. In Esther, we see that an ancient foe, um, an ancient foe that God promised to destroy, now holds the power to destroy God's people. Would God remain faithful to his people in spite of their faithlessness? Mordecai answers that question when he says that deliverance will come for the Jews. In one way or another, whether it's Esther, whether it's someone else, God will remain faithful to his people. Friends, just like the Jews in the book of Esther, we too are often a faithless people. And we express that faith, faithlessness in a variety of ways, right? So we express that when we hear God's command to be slow to speak and quick to listen, but when we're always the first to open our mouths because we want our words to be heard by everyone. We express our faithlessness when we go to work, but rather than working as if we're working unto the Lord, we work kind of lazily. Perhaps we work for our own uh, pride, our own recognition. We express our faithlessness when we, are given our, when we are given an opportunity to identify ourselves as one of God's people, and we shy away. When we refuse to identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, we pass it up because we are fearful of what people will think of us. But even when we fail to be faithful, God is faithful to us, and he will deliver us. But how? How do we know? What's the proof? What tells us that God will indeed be faithful to us? And how will he deliver us? We know that he will be faithful because of the covenant he made with us when Jesus Christ went to the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he went as the perfectly faithful Son of God who never expressed one ounce of faithlessness. 
He never sinned in any way, and he never deserved to be punished for anything. He took our place, right? We were the faithless ones. We were the ones that deserved to be punished, but Jesus Christ took our place. And when he went to the cross, he went with my sin. He went with my unfaithfulness. He went with your sin. He went with your unfaithfulness. And when he was nailed to that cross, your sin and your unfaithfulness were nailed to the cross with him. Through faith, albeit an imperfect faith, right? Rarely do we show. We never show a perfect faith. But through an imperfect faith, we are brought into that covenant relationship with God where he now says to us, I love you and I am never going to let you go. But what, what does that deliverance look like for us? We saw in the book of Esther, deliverance looked like a rescue from annihilation. What does it look like for God's people now? There may be those of you here that although you, you've placed your faith in Christ, you believe in God's goodness, your circumstances seem difficult and it seems to indicate that God has forgotten about you. So you hear about deliverance for God's people, but everything in your life, it feels opposite from deliverance. It doesn't feel like God is there. It doesn't feel like he's being faithful. And you say, Justin, what do you mean when you say God will deliver us? Friends, deliverance does not necessarily mean deliverance from difficult circumstances. I, I wish I could stand up here and say that God's deliverance for his people will mean that he'll deliver you from every difficult circumstance that you've ever faced. But that's not always what deliverance looks like. Deliverance looks like Jesus suffering the greatest injustice ever committed on the cross so that we might be rescued from our sin. Deliverance looks like the promise of your sin being washed away so that you can stand before Jesus as a part of his church, as his bride, and hear that he loves you. Deliverance looks like God being with you in the midst of those difficult circumstances so that you might look more like Christ at the end of it all. Deliverance looks like our sweet sister Jean who passed away who is now truly at home with her Savior. God is faithful. Church, he will deliver us. He's going to bring us home someday to him. Look to Christ, Christ alone for deliverance. So Esther teaches us that God is, in faith, God is faithful in spite of our faithlessness, but it also teaches us that God's providence leads us to a choice. We asked that question earlier. We're going, to be, we're going to get to the end of this and we're going to be faced with a choice. We see in the book of Esther that God's providence in allowing Mordecai to be rewarded, God's providence in allowing Esther to become queen, he's sovereignly directing all of these events to arrive at one precise point. And it's illustrated, all of that illustrates Mordecai's words to Esther when he says, how do you know that you're not in your position for this exact time? His words form a rhetorical question that say to you and me, 
You are exactly where you are because that is exactly where God has intended you to be. Every person you've met, every conversation you've had, every meal you've eaten, every single second of your life, every good and bad thing, they're all arriving at this point under God's sovereign direction. And the question this text asks us is what will we do with that? What will we do knowing that God has designed every single millisecond of our life to bring us to this precise point? The text shows us that we're straddling the border, right? Remember Texarkana? We're straddling the border between Texas and Arkansas. We're straddling the border between siding with God and his people or siding against God and against God's people. And God is asking you and he's asking me which side are you on will you side with god and his people and bow down to him as king or will you side with our world will you side with our culture will you side with yourself where you see yourself as the one who's in control where you see yourself as the one who is king esther shows us that there is a right side and that there is a wrong side. Siding with God and identifying with his people, it brings deliverance. Siding against God and siding against God's people, it brings destruction. But what does it look like to side with God and identify with his, with his people? So briefly, three things before we close. What does it look like to side with God and his people? Well, first, it looks like repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ, trusting in Christ alone to rescue you. The Bible teaches us that unless we've been rescued from our rebellion against God, we can't even get over to the other side. There's like a, a wall on that border that won't even let us go to God's side. We physically don't have the power to side with God and his people unless we repent and unless God works in our heart to bring about faith in Christ in his work, in his work alone to rescue us from our sin. It's only by God's grace that we can side with God and with his people. So if you're here and you have not repented, if you have not chosen to side with God, God has brought you to this very moment so that you can repent, so that you can confess every way that you have disobeyed him and trust in him for salvation. Friend, I encourage you, turn to Christ. It will be the best decision that you ever make. Second, it looks like identifying as one of God's people. Esther was called to risk her life by identifying as one of God's people. So while very few of us will be in a position where our life might be on the line if we identify ourselves as Christians, God calls us to that kind of boldness. That means it shouldn't be a surprise to our coworkers that we are followers of Jesus Christ. It shouldn't be a surprise that we go to church on Sunday, that we worship God and God alone, and that we believe it is only through Christ and Christ alone that we experience salvation. We must never place our comfort and our security above identifying as one of God's people. And third, it looks like a love for God 
and a love for others that is empowered by God's Spirit. God's people are characterized by obedience to Him and a deeply rooted love for others that is sourced by the Holy Spirit of God. So that means if you're a husband, to side with God, to choose God's side, it means that on a daily basis, you're laying down your own interests, your own desires in favor of your wife, in favor of your children, so that you can model Christ's love for the church, right? Christ died to save his church. If you're a husband, that's the kind of love God has called you to, to your family. If you're a mom, it means working your job to the best of your ability, or it means staying at home and loving your kids and teaching them to love God the best they can with the best patience that you can muster up by the Spirit of God, by the power of God. If you're single, it means caring for other brothers and sisters in the church who need a friend. It means trusting in God's goodness even when it seems distant. If you're a student, it means doing your best day in and day out in your schoolwork. It means identifying as one of God's children even when it might cost you something. It means that if you're caught in the snare of repeated sin, that you will come to the Lord, repent, ask him to forgive you of that sin, and experience the forgiveness that he offers. He will forgive you. These are just a few out of the millions of ways that we can obey God, that we can show our love for God, that we can show our love for others, and show that we are choosing to side with God and with his people. And remember, it's not by our own power, it's not by our own will, it's not because we can try really hard to obey God, it's not because we can try really hard to love those around us, it comes because God has delivered us from that sin. And through his deliverance, he's given us his spirit who empowers us to love him, to love others, and to choose his side. So friends, what will you do? You're faced with the choice of siding with God and with his people or to side against God and against God's people. The sun in Texarkana, it's beginning to set. And you have to choose which side will you be on. The choice is yours. Choose Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for this word that you've given to us. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to identify with you and identify God's people. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this, help us to obey, help us to love you, help us to love others, help us to trust in the deliverance that you bring. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.